Blog Talk Radio. Radio. What I'm going to do for you now, I'm going to play the lesson, is Drum Carter winning the battle against him, part four. The following sermon is by John MacArthur, pastor, author, and Bible teacher with Grace to You. If you've never contacted Grace to You, we want to send you a free book by John called Good News, the Gospel of Jesus Christ. It expounds on the central message of Christianity, that Jesus Christ lived and died to save sinners. Request your free book by writing to goodnews at gty.org. That's goodnews at gty.org. And this offer is good in North America and Europe through December 2020. And now, unleashing God's truth one verse at a time, here's grace to you, Bible teacher John MacArthur. For the instruction this morning, open your Bible to Romans 8. We are doing a series in Romans 8, and we'll 
continue in this chapter. I, I'm not in any hurry to get through it because there's so much here that is very important for us. Let me read the opening nine verses again just to set it in your minds. The Apostle Paul says, Therefore, based on all that he has taught in chapters 5, 6, and 7 about the gospel and salvation in Christ, because of all of that, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We looked at that. We are in no condemnation status. Why? Because our condemnation was borne by Christ in His death on the cross. We will never be condemned because, verse 2, the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and as an offering for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh, so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the Spirit is life and peace, because the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Him. As we've been saying throughout this brief study so far, we are in no condemnation status because we are in Christ, and in Him we bear His righteousness as He bore our sins. As a result of being in Christ, the Spirit has given us life, verse 2 says, has made us alive and set us free from the law of sin and death. The Spirit has also enabled us, verse 4, to fulfill the law so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. This chapter is the Holy Spirit's chapter and it lays out for us how the Holy Spirit brings us to eternal glory, how the Holy Spirit maintains our no-condemnation status all the way into heaven. He does it, obviously, by giving us life through the work of Christ, by regenerating us, as described in, verse, in these verses, and He does it also by enabling us to fulfill the law in the power of the Spirit. But I want to stop the process a little bit to note before we go to the next work of the Holy Spirit in our lives in verses 12 and 13, that there is a doctrine laid out here that must be understood, must be understood. It is the most attacked doctrine in Scripture. It is the most offensive doctrine in Scripture, the most contrary doctrine in Scripture. It is the most necessary doctrine in Scripture. It is the most defining doctrine in Scripture. It is the most foundational doctrine of the gospel and salvation and is often not understood, even though it is all of those things. We will see that 
truth revealed if we look at verse 5 and follow the flow of the text. Those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. Verse 6, for the mind set on the flesh is death. Verse 7, because the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Those are amazing statements. They are defining statements that describe the condition of every person who is in the flesh. And there are only two kinds of people in the world, those in the flesh and those in the Spirit. Those who are in Christ and in the Spirit are of the Spirit. They mind the things of the Spirit. They walk in the Spirit. They fulfill the law. And the end is life and peace. But for those who are in the flesh, they mind the things of the flesh. They walk in the flesh. They are hostile to God. They are on the road to death. They're not subject to His law, not able to be subject to His law, nor can they do anything to please Him. That is divine revelation on the human condition. Lest you think that people are basically good, I want to show you what this passage is saying. Those who are in the flesh walk according to the flesh. In other words, they do what their fleshly impulses dictate. Their minds are set on the flesh and only the flesh. And the end is death. They hate God. That's what the word hostile in verse 7 means. They hate God. They do not subject themselves to the law of God. They aren't able to do it. And because they're in the flesh, they cannot please God. That is the human condition. This is the most attacked of all doctrines whether wittingly or unwittingly. The idea that sinners, that people, all of them, the entire human race apart from Christ, are completely helpless, hopeless, unwilling, unable to please God in any sense is offensive. In fact, in John 7, our Lord summed it up in these words, John 7 and verse 7, the world hates me because I testify of it that its deeds are evil. There it is in one summary statement. Why did they reject Jesus? Why did Israel reject Jesus? Why did the religious leaders reject Jesus? He says it there. They hated Him. Hatred enough to have Him executed by the Romans. They hated Him because He said their deeds are evil. And their deeds are evil because their minds are evil because their nature is evil. 
That is the most offensive of all Christian doctrines. However, at the same time, it is the most distinctively Christian doctrine. It is distinctively Christian because it is contrary to the doctrines of all other religions. All religions, in one way or another, find a spark of goodness in man. All other religions affirm that people can be good, should be good, should will to be good, should behave in a good way, and if they do that, they will gain favor with the deity and merit whatever category of blessing there is in this life and the life to come. Only the Christian gospel starts with the utter sinfulness of all human beings, so that they hate God, they are unable to keep His law, unwilling to keep His law, and it's impossible for them to do anything to please Him in any way that would turn His judgment into favor. This is also the doctrine at which point most people are deceived. Jeremiah says, the heart of man is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. The dominating deceit which shows up in religion is that there's something good in man, spark of divinity, that there's something in us that can choose good, do good, think good thoughts, and thus please God and turn away His wrath, whoever that God may be, and find favor with Him. This is the great deception of all deceptions. Look, Satan is a liar and the father of lies. John 8:44 and everybody who is a child of Satan is engulfed in a world of lies and only lies and the dominant lie is that you're good. To some degree and to say that the human condition is the way that Romans 8 says it is contrary to fallen man's natural defense mechanisms. People deny that they are essentially evil. They don't deny that they do things they shouldn't do, but they deny that they are essentially evil. They would deny that they are hostile toward God, that they hate God. You hear people, politicians a lot lately and people in the pop culture talking about God and Jesus and, and they... They love God and they love Jesus and they would deny that they hate God, that they hate Christ. They would deny that they are incapable of true good. And the reason they deny that is because they are self-deceived. That's part of being in the kingdom of darkness. The dominating reality of the kingdom of darkness is you believe lies. And the big lie you believe is that you're good that you're good enough to be acceptable to God. People invoke the name of God all the time and, and the name of the Lord Jesus. They claim to love God. They claim to love Jesus. While in reality, they hate God. 
they have a sentimental affection for the God of their own making, but they hate and cannot love the true and living God. Friendship with the world, James says in James 4.4, 4, is hatred of God. So if you're a part of the world, you hate God. Now this is the most paradoxical doctrine also, because most people deny that they are basically inherently bad, but they admit that they do bad things. But that seems to be the exception rather than the rule to self-protective sinners. But they will admit that they are sinners in their sins, but not in their nature, and not in their goodness when they do favors for people, when they do philanthropic things, when they act in some noble fashion for the benefit of others, or when they are religious, they don't see the sin in their goodness. They don't see the sin in their religion. They don't understand that their righteousness is filthy rags, Isaiah 64 says. False religion, in fact, is the most heinous sin of all. You hear somebody say, I believe in God, I love God, I believe in Jesus. That is a heinous sin if it's not the true God and the true Jesus. False religion is the most heinous of all sins because it is a breach of the first commandment to love the true God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and never to have another God. Religion just makes other gods. Even in the name of Christianity, man is so deeply sinful that he will invent gods and religions that directly show his hatred to the true God. He will even embrace, supposedly, the God of the Bible, but hold on to sin and iniquity as if it was virtue because he is religious, and in reality it is nothing but hatred of the true God. Simply stated, Jesus said this, if you love me, you, what? Keep my commandments. So this is a paradoxical doctrine because what you're saying to someone is, this is who you are. According to Romans 8, according to the revelation of God, you are a God-hater. You are hopeless, helpless, unwilling, unable, cannot please God at all. And they are offended. And they will say, but I'm very religious. I believe in God. I even believe in Jesus. But it is a Jesus of their own making, of their own manufacturing, like the or a God of their own making, like golden calf back in Exodus. Some evangelical preachers aid and abet this hatred of the true God, this hatred of the God of Scripture, because they hide this truth from sinners. They don't want to say what the Bible says about the sinner's condition. It's offensive. You're not going to pack an auditorium with a rock concert and a light show and a whole pile of entertainment 
and then preach on total depravity and have anybody show up next week. So if your goal is to get a crowd and make them feel good about themselves, you don't talk about this. So you essentially ignore the foundational doctrine of all doctrines of salvation, the doctrine of human sinfulness. Consequently, it is the most minimized doctrine. All false belief systems affirm some human goodness. Christianity affirms no human goodness. And I'm not talking about the fact that you can't do a favor for someone or act in a philanthropic way. When I say no goodness, I mean no goodness that alters the sinner's relationship to God and takes it from a position of judgment to a position of favor. You can't do that kind of goodness. And yet, you have all these people in their church growth strategies wanting to hide the true condition of sinners and tell them all God wants to do is give them what they want. They can speak it into existence. All God wants to do is let them know He loves them unconditionally, as if they were attractive, and He's waiting for them to come and embrace all the things that He wants to give them. And what does He want to give them? Whatever they want, whatever they desire. Wherever you have any kind of confusion about the doctrine of human sinfulness, and it's everywhere. You impede the advance of the true gospel because God is looking for a broken and a contrite heart, as we read in Psalm 51. And as Isaiah 66 says, and one who trembles at His Word. You cannot advance the gospel without starting with the full picture of human sinfulness. To remove that doctrine is to wind up on the side of the enemies of the cross. Every movement in Christianity that has minimized or rejected this truth of human sinfulness has gone badly astray. Because if you don't get this right, you don't get the rest of soteriology right. And that's because this is the most foundational doctrine. To grasp the truth of man's sinfulness is to understand all other doctrinal components of salvation. They become obvious. You hear people say, well, I can't believe in predestination. I can't believe in the doctrine of sovereign election to salvation. I can't believe in the fact that salvation is a, a monergistic or a soul work of God and God alone. I, I can't believe that. You could believe that. You would have to believe that. You would have nothing else that you could possibly believe if you understand the human condition. If God doesn't choose and God doesn't give life and God doesn't regenerate and God doesn't justify it will never happen because the sinner is not willing, not able, only a God-hater. Once you understand that man is in the condition he is in, understanding sovereign salvation is obvious. The true gospel ministry 
transcends all forms of manipulation. So when you don't lay the foundation of human sinfulness, and then you appeal to the sinner as if the sinner has the ability to respond to that appeal based upon giving God the character of some heavenly genie who's going to give the sinner what the sinner wants, you're using manipulation to overcome consumer resistance, which you can't overcome because it's the very nature of sinners. So, the doctrine of human sinfulness is the most God-glorifying doctrine. Because when someone is taken out of death into life, God gets all the glory, right? Scripture is clear on human sinfulness. This is the most historical doctrine. This had to be understood in church history. Today you hear a lot about free will. As if the sinner has the willingness and the ability, if prodded the right way or induced by the right musical environment, on his own to turn from sin to God, to turn from death to life, from blindness to sight, from hating God to loving God. That's the free will idea. But the Bible teaches that that's impossible because man has been conceived in sin. That too from Psalm 51, right? In sin did my mother conceive me. I was formed in iniquity. doesn't mean he was an illegitimate child. He means from the very moment of conception, sin was passed to me. The most historical doctrine, I mean in this sense, that the doctrine of original sin is essential to Christian orthodoxy. It's essential. It was not invented by Luther, was not invented by Calvin or the Reformers. They were part of helping us understand it. Go back from them a thousand years to Pelagius, a man named Pelagius who was born in 360 A.D. and died in 420. And his friend Celestius. And they said that um, man is not born sinful. They said that the sin of Adam affected only Adam. And every human being who is born is born in the same innocence as Adam. He doesn't bring any sinful nature into the world. Sin is a choice for everyone. Everyone is exactly like Adam. Adam's sin affected only Adam. On the other hand, Augustine came along and said, no, sinners are totally unable, totally unwilling to obey God, to do anything that pleases God, unless God, he said, intervenes by grace to free them from the bondage of sin. Augustine. According to Pelagius and Pelagianism, anyone who chooses to obey God can do so. We just have to move people's will. He denied that human nature was in any way defiled or disabled by inherited sin from Adam. 
Pelagius said, every person possesses perfect freedom of the will, as Adam did. So we sin purely by choice, not compulsion and not by nature. It's a pretty lame argument because everybody who's ever lived has died and the wages of sin is death and nobody made a choice other than sin. You might want to rethink that idea. Pelagius said sinners have the power to change their choices and free themselves from sin. We need to appeal to the sinner to get him to make that call. After being dealt with for a period of time in some church councils, finally in 431 at the Council of Ephesus, the idea was denounced as a heresy. It's a heresy to say that there's anything good in man, that he's unaffected by the sin of Adam so that he comes into the world like Adam did, innocent, and he can choose righteousness or he can choose sin. That was denounced by the righteous minds as heresy. Well, it didn't go away. A new wave followed which said, well, okay, Adam's sin did affect man, but affected man only in some partial way. It affected man so that most of him was disabled, but not all of him. Sinners were left with just enough free will to make the first move toward God, the first move in repentance, the first move in faith, unaided by any divine grace or any divine power, and that was called semi-Pelagianism. That... Uh, was also labeled as prevenient grace, the theological term, meaning there's some little deposit in us uh, of God's grace that has left part of our will unaffected by the fall. And so we have enough of that that we can choose God. And God simply responds to the sinner's choice. He doesn't choose who is to be saved. He doesn't actually start salvation. He simply kicks in when the believer by his own will enacts that faith. This is depravity, admittedly, but not total. Saving grace is a divine response from God. This is the idea, whether it's articulated theologically or not, this is the idea that drives all pragmatism in ministry, that there's something in the sinner that can respond on the sinner's own. So don't worry about talking about depravity and sin and wretchedness and wrath and eternal hell. That will offend the sinner, make the sinner feel comfortable, make him like Jesus, and he'll turn his will toward Jesus and God will take over from there. This, too, was declared a heresy and denounced by several church councils starting in 529 A.D. 500 years before Luther and Calvin. The depravity of man was preached by John Huss Wycliffe, later, of course, by Luther and many others. Luther wrote a book on the bondage of the will in which he was arguing with Erasmus over this issue. Now, this is what they were affirming, and this is what the Scripture would teach us. We are all equally unable. We are all equally unwilling. That is not to say we are all as bad as we could be. 
When we talk about total depravity, we don't mean that everybody is Jeffrey Dahmer's or everybody's Adolf Hitler. Everybody is some serial killer. We don't mean that. What we do mean is that all men are unwilling and unable to come to God on their own, to give life to themselves, to give sight to themselves. The Westminster Confession put it this way, man by his fallen state of sin has wholly lost all ability of will to any spiritual good accompanying salvation. Great statement. Man by his fallen state of sin has wholly lost all ability of will to any spiritual good accompanying salvation. This was affirmed in the London Baptist Confession. This was confirmed in the 39 Articles of the Anglican Church. This was confirmed in the Belgic Confession. This is historic Christian doctrine. That's why I say it's a historical doctrine. Man is totally depraved, just as Romans 8 says. Hates God. His mind is on the flesh because his nature is in the flesh. He does the things of the flesh, which is what it means to walk in the flesh. The end is death. He cannot subject himself to the law of God. It's not possible, and therefore he can't please God. That is the opening message of the gospel. If you hide that, you're assuming that the sinner has the power to come to God on some other basis than the terrifying reality of sin and death and judgment. Oh, Jesus wants to make you happy and rich and famous and successful. And No, the Bible describes the sinner's condition as dead. Describes the sinner's condition with words like this, darkness, blindness, hardness, slavery, incurable sickness, alienation. The condition is so complete that it affects body, mind, emotion, desire, will, motive, behavior. So powerful that no sinner can overcome it. Now, why am I dealing with this? Well, because it's true, and that's enough reason, right? But because pragmatism has engulfed and swallowed up the professing church and convinced them that this message is so offensive, in fact, it was so offensive, they killed the Lord Jesus. You would have thought that pure goodness, pure love, embodied in the incarnate Son of God, would have been enough to overcome hostility. But the one thing you cannot keep telling sinners is that they are evil. Back to John 7, verse 7. They hated me because I told them their deeds were evil. Where is that? Where is that on the list of Christian priorities to declare to this generation? This contemporary generation is looking for methods to overcome consumer resistance which can't be overcome because it's impossible. So much of current evangelistic strategy is to identify what people desire and then tell them Jesus will give it to them. 
Never does the Bible ever say God wants to give sinners what in their sinful, fallen condition they already want. Because it's all selfish. It's all self-indulgent. It's all superficial. God never promises to give any fallen human being what that fallen human being in his fallen condition wants in his fleshly desire. So we've got to tell them the truth. This is gospel honesty. Now let's look at a couple of texts that support what we see here in Romans. Go to Ephesians 2. Just a few before we wrap it up. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. It can't be said any more clearly than that. Dead people don't respond. Dead people don't respond. The analogy is so obvious. You can go to a funeral and, and you can reach in the casket and you can make any gesture you want. You can say anything. You can sing a song to the corpse. You can push the corpse, no response. What is the nature of death? The inability to respond. You were, before you came to Christ, dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, and this world hates God as we saw in James 4.4, according to the prince of the power of the air, that's a title for Satan, the Spirit now working in the sons of disobedience. So you're dead in sin. You walk according to the course of the world. You're under the power of the, you're under the prince of the power of the air. The Spirit is now working in you, and you are a son of disobedience, a child of disobedience, which means your defining characteristic is disobedience. You are living in the lust, verse 3, of your flesh, indulging the desires of your flesh and your mind, and by nature you are a children of wrath just like everybody else. Wow. That is a very clear description of the human condition of sinfulness. You are a, a child of disobedience means that you are essentially of the family of the disobedient. You are a child of wrath. You are a member of the family of those who are headed for eternal judgment, just like everybody else. The problem is in your nature, verse 3. The problem is in your desire, verse 3. The problem is in your mind, verse 3. The problem is in your flesh, verse 3. And the compounding of that problem is the world and the prince of the power of the air who is working in you. You're blinded not only by your fallenness, you're blinded by Satan, 2 Corinthians 4 says. This is the human condition. So what do we do about that? We don't do anything. Verse 4, but God. That's really important. That's where it starts because it can't start with us. But God, being rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come He might show the surpassing riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. 
but God. In mercy. Mercy assumes that you haven't done anything to deserve it. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It's mercy and mercy alone. Mercy motivated, verse 4, by love. And by mercy and love, when we were dead, God made us alive together with Christ. He placed us in Christ. We died in Him. We rise in Him. It's all by grace. Verse 8, by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves. That salvation by grace through faith is not your work. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works so that no one may boast. That can't be more clear, right? People will say, the doctrine of election offends me. Really? So you're not like the rest of the human race, right? You have the capacity in yourself to believe as a dead, blind member of the kingdom of darkness, a child of disobedience, a child of wrath, doubly blinded by Satan, the God of this world, who's blinded their minds lest the light of the gospel should shine unto them. You're hopeless, helpless. But somewhere in your hopeless, helplessness, in your inability to please God, you picked yourself up and decided to come to God on your own. Really? That's not even remotely close to what Scripture teaches. And if you believe that people have a sort of semi-Pelagian, prevenient grace residing in them somewhere, then you, can, then you can become a pragmatist. But if you understand the doctrine of depravity the way the Bible lays it out, you can't possibly be a pragmatist because only God saves. John 5 Verse 40, well, 39, you search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify about Me, and you are unwilling to come to Me so that you may have life. Another pathological description of the human condition. You are unwilling. John 6:44. Jesus said, No one comes to Me unless the Father draws him. Oh, well, that makes sense, right? John 6, 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. John 6, 64. There are some of you who do not believe, for Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who didn't believe and who it was who would betray him. And he was saying, for this reason I have said to you, no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. Oh. It's only possible to be saved if it's the will of the Father. In John 8, verse 36, if the Son makes you free, you will be free indeed. If the Father decides to set you free, you'll be free. If the Son decides to set you free, you'll be free. Listen to John 5.21. Just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, listen to this, even so the Son also gives life to whom He wishes. You can't possibly have anything but a doctrine of divine, sovereign 
salvation when you understand the human condition. The Bible describes man as the living dead. As in Adam all died, Romans 5.12. By one man's sin, the whole human race fell into sin. The Bible says the heart reflects that deadness. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. The mind, we see that right here in Romans chapter 8. The mind is affected. People mind only the things of the flesh. 1 Corinthians 2.14, the natural man understands not the things of God. Their foolishness to him, he can't know them because they're spiritually discerned and he's spiritually dead. The will is affected. No one can come unless the Father draws him. The conduct is affected. In Mark chapter 7, there's a very important text of Scripture that speaks about this human condition. Listen to verse 20 of Mark 7. This is Jesus talking. That which proceeds out of the man, that is what defiles the man. Wow. There's some pathology of human sinfulness. It's what's inside of you that's wretched. It's that which proceeds out of the man that defiles the man. For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed the evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting and wickedness, as well as deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things proceed from within and defile the man. The problem is not outside. The problem is inside. And we saw in Romans 3:10, there's none righteous, no, not one. There's none that does good. In an unconverted condition, everyone is dead in the darkness, driven by the lusts of the flesh, the desires of the flesh and of the mind, hating God, even though being religious, but hating God, hating the true God, and hating anyone who declares to them that their deeds are evil. This doctrine has been the conviction of the true church for centuries. It is called total depravity. That can be misleading. When we think of depravity, we think of something degraded and debased and immoral to a twisted and perverted and extreme degree. So if you say to someone, you're totally depraved, I mean, that's a classic term for the doctrine. People are going to say, what are you talking about? I'm not Charles Manson. To call someone totally depraved would be to sort of set them outside the normal understanding of what depravity has come to mean in our culture. So better to say, you're a child of the devil. <laughs> you're a child of disobedience. You're a child of wrath. You hate God. You cannot subject yourself to His law. You're unable to do so. You're unwilling to do so. And nothing you could ever do on your own would please Him. And that's the truth. And consequently, you're headed for judgment. All people are completely unable to raise themselves out of the death and blindness and darkness and slavery and ignorance. Can't be done. 
It can't be done. You say, well, what do I do? If you're asking that question, it may be that the Spirit of God is moving on your heart. Do I start with repentance, you say? Maybe I could do the repentance part, huh? Uh, No. No, you can't do the repentance part either. Listen to 2 Timothy 2, 25 and 26. If perhaps God... This is, let's go back to verse 24. The Lord's slave, the one who preaches the gospel, must not be quarrelsome, kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with meekness or gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. The only way you'll ever escape is if God not only grants you the faith, but God has to grant you what? The repentance. The repentance. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, the end of the chapter, great chapter, verse 26, consider your calling, your calling to salvation. There were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. The Lord chooses the insignificant people. God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And the base things of the world and the despised. God has chosen the things that are not, the the no ones, the nobodies so that He may nullify the things that are, so that no one may boast before God. God chooses, God chooses, God chooses. So that, verse 30, by His doing you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So that, just as it is written all the way back in Jeremiah, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. You made no contribution. Until God regenerates the heart, until God by His Spirit produces true repentance, you have neither the ability or even the inclination to come. God is not waiting for you to start it or depending on you to agree with Him to do it mutually. He grants repentance. He raises you from the dead. He gives you life in place of death. Apart from the work of God through the Holy Spirit, based on the accomplishment of Christ, no sinner would ever, ever, ever come. You say, well, how do I know if uh, I'm one God is drawing? Because He'll draw you. Again, Anything less than understanding this complete picture of sinfulness will put us in a position where we're asking sinners to do what they can't do. All we can say to sinners is, if you desire this repentance and confession and salvation, cry out to God to rescue you. I mean, if you're drowning in, a, in the rapids, 
shouting, save yourself, save yourself, save yourself to yourself, you're not going to do much. And it won't do any good if there are some people on the bank saying, if you can save yourself, we'll dry you off when you get out. Not helpful. A gospel call can be to the sinner to repent and believe, but with the understanding and the knowledge that you have to tell the sinner his condition so that he understands from which position he hopelessly and helplessly can only be rescued by God. One other text comes to mind, Titus 3. Verse 3, we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice, which is a word for evil, and envy, hateful, hating one another. But when, it sounds like Ephesians, when the kindness of God our Savior and His love for man appeared, He saved us. Got that? Not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but again, it's according to His mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. It's the new birth, whom the Spirit whom He poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Again, but God, our Savior, His love, His mercy, nothing to do with us, our deeds, but by mercy He regenerated us, gave us new life by the Holy Spirit, justification, sanctification, and one day glorification. This doesn't happen in a vacuum, by the way. Listen to 1 Peter 1.23. For you have been born again, you have been regenerated, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable. That is, through the living and enduring Word of God. What is it that God uses to regenerate? The living and enduring Word of God. Faith comes by hearing the Word. So what do we do? We tell sinners the truth about their condition and that only God can rescue them. And we show them the plan of God's rescue in the gospel. And it's up to the Spirit from there. Denial of this doctrine of human sinfulness leaves people with the idea that they can find ways to convince the sinner because there's something good in there by which the sinner can respond and they will twist the message to make it appealing and inevitably not tell the whole truth. Never, ever tell sinners that God wants to give them what they want in their fallen flesh. Jesus said in Luke 9.23, If any man come after me, let him deny what? Himself. Okay, the message is not if you want health and wealth and prosperity and all your dreams to be fulfilled, come to Jesus. The message is if you will deny every desire, every longing, every ambition, 
and come to Jesus penitent and broken, He won't turn you away. Jesus said, whoever comes to Me, I will not turn away. Never, ever appeal to what enslaves fallen people in an effort to convince them that they can rescue themselves from that enslavement by luring them with what in their fallen flesh is a natural desire and not a godly one at all. Don't ever affirm the legitimacy of the sinner's desire. Never change the message to somehow think you can reduce consumer resistance. Preach the truth about sin and righteousness and judgment. All sinners are the same, all in the same condition, need to be told that condition, and then told the goodness of the gospel. And in the midst of all of this, I go back to something Jesus said in Matthew 11, because you're saying to yourself, well, how do I know who's chosen and who's not? Don't worry about that. Listen to what Jesus said. Come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Wow. Open invitation. Who's going to come? Those who labor and are heavy laden. What does that mean? People who have a hard job? No. People who are literally overwhelmed with the burden of what? Their sin. Their sin. You know, the church, this is sad to say, of all professions, the, the church really is the only institution, ministry is the only profession where we ourselves are responsible for our failures and none of our successes. Because all the success comes from who? God. All we want to do is get in line with His truth. Let's pray. Lord, this is such an important truth to declare as you revealed it. I know there are people here whose hearts have been convicted because they are in their unredeemed fallen condition as children of Satan, children of disobedience, children of wrath, therefore children of judgment. All the while, you offer free forgiveness. In Christ, you offer life and peace. And the Holy Spirit and walking in the Spirit and minding the things of the Spirit and being led by the Spirit. And that leads us right into the eternal glories of heaven. Speak to hearts, Lord. Be gracious to sinners today. Be merciful to them. For your own namesake, we pray. Amen. You've been listening to John MacArthur, Bible teacher with Grace to You. For free access to all of John's lessons and a listing of study Bibles and books available for sale, visit Grace to You's website at gty.org. And for details about the Masters University, where John serves as chancellor, go to masters.edu. 
John MacArthur and Grace to You reserve all copyright protection under applicable law. Our copyright policy is available at gty.org, and it includes instructions for and limitations on duplicating this digital file. This little light, this little light, gonna let it shine, let it shine, gonna let it shine, shine.
So what is a kind? This is Ken Ham, a missionary to our evolutionized culture and even to the church. The book of Genesis tells us that God created everything according to their kinds. Now, our modern classification system groups organisms according to kingdom, phylum, class, order, family, genus, species. So what's a kind? Well, it seems that the kind is equivalent to family. Often organisms in the same family, even if they're different species, can breed together. So organisms that belong to the same family are probably part of the same kind. Let's look at cats. There are about 36 species of cats, but they all belong to the same family, so they're all part of the same kind. There's lots of variety within a kind, but cats stay cats. There's so much more to discover about creation, evolution, the Bible, and more at AnswersRadio.com. And listen to this program again or find hundreds like it at AnswersRadio.com.
Is change evolution? This is Ken Ham, author, speaker, and blogger on why we can trust the Bible's 66 books. The Bible teaches that organisms reproduce according to their kinds. Now, kind is about the level of family in our classification system. You see, God built an incredible amount of variety into the DNA of every creature he made. And this allows them to adapt to an ever-changing world. Now, some people say this is evolution. After all, we see change, they say. But evolution requires the addition of brand new genetic information to build new features. That's not what we observe. What we observe is a loss or reshuffling of information that already exists. Information always comes from information, and it was created by God at the very beginning. Subscribe to receive free daily email insights from Ken Ham when you visit our faith-affirming website at AnswersRadio.com and listen to this program again at AnswersRadio.com. God is 
Tigers and Walpins? This is Ken Ham, CEO of the ministry that built a full-size Noah's Ark south of Cincinnati. Okay, you've probably never heard of a liger or a Walpin. A liger is the offspring from a tiger mating with a lion. And a Walpin is the offspring of a dolphin and a so-called false killer whale. Now, how are hybrids like this possible? Well, because tigers and lions are both part of the cat kind, and dolphins and false killer whales are part of the dolphin kind. Hybrids happen when different species interbreed, and that confirms a biblical truth. Organisms reproduce according to their kinds, or what we call families today. There's a lot of variety within a kind, and that's because God put the variety in the DNA in the beginning. But we never observe evolution. Get answers to your questions about science, the Bible, and more at AnswersRadio.com and plan your visit to the life-size Noah's Ark South of Cincinnati at AnswersRadio.com. Let me start this off with a hallelujah to Jesus, the sovereign ruler. This is not a rumor. Got the truth, so we about to school you. Check out a style maneuver. Shout it to you like the loudest group. Christ put us up from out the sewer. We don't have to doubt the future. Crafting our verses as we bask in his worship. You asking the purpose, partly to fetch hats from the furnace. Through Jesus' extravagant service, immaculate purchase. He was smashing the serpent, and we only scratching the surface. He proceeded was conceived in the womb of a virgin. The sun emerges in the manger while the angels serenade him. It's the birth of the Savior, the greater ambiguity. Came a man, came as a lamb, and would be executed to execute the plan to substitute the sand. In the place of the wicked on the cross, he was lifted, but we considered him stricken and afflicted, just like the prophets predicted. He came at the proper moment to stop his opponent and lay down his life to offer atonement. He's the most magnificent, the total antithesis of insufficient, the blessed, the glorious, splendid, transcendent, difficult to comprehend, independent of space and time, but presently present, suspending the heavens with speech. From coast to coast, he speaks peace to wind and seas, got heavenly hosts easily posted on bended knees, controls the cosmos with the most authority, so we both in a He's the sovereign thriller, the awesome healer, the law fulfiller, the solemn killer, the fraud revealer, no God is realer, yeah. When you're taking your time in the scripture, what you get is a prominent picture. See his light shining bright in the night and his bright in the might in the diamond in the mixture. See his name at all the renown though, when he came for the loss that he found though, he was tamed 
didn't floss all around, but remain for the manger, the cross of the crown. Yo, Satan had a shirt hold on him. Fight for the rope of dope and then. All to the eyes of the S to the E to the N, that's what we hoping in. Riffing on his spell check, the riffing king can rinse clean. The most rebellious, I was hellbound, now I'm spellbound. Word is born, I'm a bond servant to the word of life. Uh, call me a sellout, I was fought with a price. We gotta hope it won't fail us when we return to the dust. We will rise up just like the one who justified us. It's not wishful thinking when the truth's sinking. We are clinging to the promises of God bringing an everlasting kingdom. Nothing can compare to the worth of what we inherited. Nothing in heaven on earth can measure what Christ merited. The skies declare the affairs of his glorious care. The God who is there, who's aware, who delights in our prayer. His purposes are permanent and perfectly proportionate. Everything that orbits around his glory subordinate. He is the most excellent one. Intrinsic, infinite son. Preeminent the name par excellence. Prenom phenomenon. He's beyond phenomenon. You see the fiber of cosmology. The abba of astronomy. He's potter. We are pottery. It's shocking Jesus died for me. The father he adopted me and constantly provides for me. Whether or not I got degrees. You gotta see his odyssey. From sovereignty and lottery. To poverty and robbery. To resurrected bodily. Apocalyptic prophecy. He's stopping all the mockery. And scholarly snobbery. That don't acknowledge him properly. You ought to be on bended knee before the pre- Eminent. It's awfully arrogant to reject them to your detriment. Study the development from Old to New Testament. You'll find a theme that's prevalent from age to age. It's relevant. Crisis on its center stage. Forget religious sentiments. The center on man. But something less is what you're settling. He is the most excellent. Exercising benevolence and blessing a remnant with the benefits of his inheritance. Yeah. The sin of sinners that separated and segregated. That severed the relations between man and his maker. And placed Christ on his costly cross. And compensated his life, death, and resurrection. Emancipation. And gave us freedom from it all, freedom from the effects of the fall, freedom from Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden and from the law. So the saints stand and applaud His grace and glorious cause with hands raised, praising His name, singing glory to God. <laughs> How many animals were on the ark? This is Ken Ham, co-author of the book on Noah's flood called A Flood of Evidence. I'm often told Noah couldn't have fit millions of species of animals on the ark, but he didn't have to. You see, Noah was commanded to take two of every kind of land-dwelling, air-breathing animal on the ark with him, and seven pairs of some. So no fish, and probably no insects. And that word kind is important. Kind is about the level of family in our modern classification system. So Noah didn't need species, he needed kinds or families. That means he only needed about 1,400 kinds or less than 7,000 animals. That's not that many. As we show in our life-size ark, Noah could easily fit them on board. There's so much more to discover about the ark, the flood, and more when you visit our website at AnswersRadio.com and view a transcript of this program at AnswersRadio.com. Writing this to you, I really hope you hear my heart. When thinking about describing you, I really don't know where to start. 
start at the beginning Cause you are before the beginning Way before the beginning And this fallen world distorted opinions It was just the holy trinity Ruling from infinity Glory blazed tremendously Loving one another endlessly Billions and billions of years ago Outside of what we know it's time Nobody else was there to know But Lord, here's the thing that blows my mind As long ago as that was As long ago as that was You have not changed, Lord Not just because of what you do, but simply because of who you are There's none like you in existence, you are God and you need no assistance Even though we show you resistance, you sent Jesus to close the distance That existed between God and man, according to your sovereign plan We changed many times in one lifespan, I changed even since this song began Lord, I'm so glad that you're not like us, all that you do will certainly last You are the rock that we can trust, shows us back in eternity past As long ago as that was, as long ago as that was have not changed, Lord, oh Lord, 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 as long ago, as long ago, as long ago as that was, you're still the same, you have not changed, what can that mean, but my God is immutable, immutable, you are beautiful, you never change, you remain the same, immutable, All of my inconsistencies, all of my idiosyncrasies Still you pursue relentlessly At times I wonder how this can be Surely it's because of the cost Where Jesus paid the full penalty And bore the burden of sin's great cost I'm saved by grace and faith in God I look to Christ and I trust He died So even though I'm being sanctified I can't be any more justified His work is finished that cannot change And with this knowledge I am free Forever this grace it will remain Because of what happened on Calvary As long ago as that was Long ago as that was, you have not changed, Lord, oh Lord, Lord, Lord. As long ago, as long ago, as long ago as that was, you're still the same, you have not changed. What can that mean, but my God is immutable. Immutable, you are beautiful, you never change, you remain Is natural selection evolution? 
This is Ken Ham, founder of the popular magazine for the whole family called Answers. When I talk to groups of children and teens, I tell them about a bait and switch. You see, evolutionists will talk about natural selection and they'll show examples such as Darwin's finches. Now these finches have different sized beaks allowing them to eat different foods. Then they'll say, see, we're observing evolution. But what they're really observing is small changes within a kind. You see, the genetic information to produce different beak sizes is already there. It's built into the finch's DNA. For evolution to happen, you'd need brand new information to produce brand new features, and that's never been what we observe. Natural selection, it's not evolution. Discover the truth of God's Word when you visit our website at AnswersRadio.com. You'll be equipped and encouraged with truth to build your faith at AnswersRadio.com. Critical race theory and intersectionality are two social justice philosophies often paired together and abbreviated CRT slash I. Critical race theory divides people up into various racial groups and examines who has privilege and who doesn't. It's in bed with intersectionality, examining who experiences more discrimination at intersecting points in their identity. Here's how it works. If a woman is black and identifies as a lesbian, she has three intersecting points of discrimination, being a woman who is black and a lesbian. So she's more oppressed than, say, a white straight man whom these philosophies are meant to shame. Seeing the world through these critical lenses is called being woke. What does the Bible say about this? Colossians 2.8 says, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition and not according to Christ. Those trying to subject the church to these philosophies are puffed up with conceit, with an unhealthy craving for controversy and quarrels about words, which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction. That's all you'll ever see concerning critical race theory and intersectionality. They are meant to divide. In Romans, we're told to watch out for those who cause divisions and deceive the hearts of the naive. 1 Corinthians 1.10 says, Let there be no divisions among you, but be united in the same mind and the same judgment in Christ when we understand the text. That is when we understand the text, and it's also known as what? WWTT on YouTube, and their website WWTT.com. And that one's called What Does the Bible Say About Critical Race Theory and Intersectionality? And now, I'm going to play a song for you. This is Shining Starving Mystery. Entered into time space, the vine breaks, so the branches could find grace. 
When lights rays hit the soul, the paradigm shakes. Sublime race, run at a predefined pace. Now me and Jesus are closer than intertwined lace. And by faith, we behold his divine face. So as we're lifting up our praise to you, receive it, Lord. The object of our affection, who we adore. Falling in our misery, you daughter into history. The pardon of iniquity, startling the mystery. Oceans, the plains, mountains, the rain, the universe proclaims the glory of your name. And what am I that you called me to your side and took this out of stone and broke it open wide? Ba 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 
Yanti and friends and the VI really. Bye for now.